You're listening to the Equitopia Podcast, helping horses and humans live in harmony. I'm your host, Kaylee Hansen, and today our guest is John Lyons. Known as America's most trusted horseman, John changed the horse industry through his positive educational clinics since 1980. He uplifts and inspires people across the world with his kind, partnership-based approach to training. He has authored over 20 books, many training videos, and has been inducted into five Hall of Fames. Three of his children, Jody, John, and Josh, continue to teach his training methods. Well, I got into horses in uh, about 1973 or four, right in there somewhere. I was working in Kansas City. I was an orthopedic rep, and I was uh, doing very, very well. And I bought five acres, mm-hmm. and it was fenced in, and it was nice. And I thought, for some just weird reason, and I have no idea why, um, but this thought came into my mind that anybody that had that much acreage are to have a horse. So, <laughs> so I bought my first horse, uh, and he was a great gilding. Uh, his name was Ike. He cost $350, <laughs> and he came with a saddle, a bridle, and a tack box. So, uh, so that's how I really got into it, and then about a month later or so, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly, I saw a fellow riding down the side of the road, and he just wasn't bouncing at all. I mean, he looked perfect, and this horse was just flying down the road. So I pulled over up in front of him, and I got out and walked across the road and started talk to him, talking to him, and I asked him, I said, well, what kind of horse is that? And he said, a Tennessee walker. And I said, uh, how much would a horse like that cost? And he said, $500. And I said, I'll take it. And he said, no, you won't. You drive down here a little further and go up this road and pull into my yard. And if you can show me you can ride it, then I'll sell it to you. And so that ended up being my second horse. And then, of course, then you get a third and then you get a fourth. And, <laughs> And it just goes from there. So that's uh, that's actually how I got started in it. My real horse career started in about fifth grade. And mm-hmm. I started ditching school and I stole a horse out of a pasture and, <laughs> and rode it. So I started out as a horse thief, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that lasted about three days until the school got a hold of my parents and then uh my parents got a hold of me so (laughs) that was kind of the end of my horse stealing career but my horse career actually started when i was uh about 24. Mm -hmm. how long after how long was that after you had gotten your first horse and that tennessee walker did you become a professional well, that took um, about, let's see, that took about seven years, I think. The, mm-hmm. uh, in that time, I moved to Colorado when I was 27 and uh, bought, I had bought a ranch and started ranching and, and 
at that time, um, I, my ex-wife wanted to show horses, so I thought, well, if we're going to show horses, we should make money at it. So we bought a weanling stallion, and that ended up being a bright zip. And so I showed him for a few years, went broke on the ranch, and um, went to a clinic, and it was so bad and so dangerous. Uh, I thought it was ridiculous. And so, but what I learned at the clinic was how bad people wanted to learn. And I didn't feel like I needed to be the best trainer in the world to help people with what I knew. So uh, I just started helping doing the clinics, did the first clinic free and everybody seemed to enjoy it and like it. And so I thought, well, maybe I can make a living at it. And that's how it all started. Oh, interesting. That's really cool that it wasn't a super conscious decision of you wanting to be a horse trainer, but seeing the need for it and being able to help people. Right. And I, I had shown Zip. He was at this time, he was five years old. And I showed him his uh, uh, fifth year, and he was a high-point performance horse at nine out of ten shows, and he I showed him in every event. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, again, I knew how to get a halter on a horse. I knew <laughs> how, I knew what I knew at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I just decided, you know, I didn't have to help world champions. I just had to help people who wanted help, you know? And so I could, I could teach him what I knew and I didn't try to pretend that I knew more than that. And so then over the years and, uh, you know, I had principles that I, that I followed and, you know, from those principles and then being able to handle a lot of horses and a lot of different situations. And, uh, then I, had an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely through teaching, it really helps you deepen your learning and your understanding. Well, it does, you know, it's, but if you follow rules, you know, the rules were, you know, basically that I, I couldn't get hurt, the horse couldn't get hurt, and the horse had to be calmer and more relaxed with people after it was over methods that I used had to be acceptable to the owners, not just to me. So if they didn't like something I was doing, they knew that all they had to do was walk up to me and say, John, I'm, I'm not sure that that's good for my horse. And then I could choose a different way or do something different. So I never stopped people from, you know, helping me learn. And, uh, and I just felt like, you know, the horse, the horse never belongs to the clinician. He belongs to the, the horse owner. So the clinician doesn't have the right just to do anything that they want to do to the horse. Uh, it's just not right. So that's what I taught starting out, you know, in 1980, I started teaching that. I started teaching people that you know, there was always a better way to teach a horse to do anything. 
And so we're always on a constant learning path of trying to figure out a better method to teach horses. The uh, people, you know, the common uh, misconception is there's not training methods that will work on every single horse. Well, that's not true. Once I found one method that worked on every single horse I came across, then I knew there were methods that would work on uh, every horse. So, uh, so that's what, you know, that's what I did. And that's, and I told people if they came and they rode with me in a clinic and then they came back six months later and I was doing it the same way to never come back again, you know, because I should be learning, not doing what I did. I should be constantly learning and, and searching for better ways. And I would tell them that even the very best way that I know of that works great on every horse, I already know there's a better way to do it. I don't know the better way, but I know that there's a better way out there. So I keep searching for uh, easier, safer, faster, more acceptable ways for the horse to learn. Yeah, that's such a unique perspective. That's really inspiring to hear. How did you um, come to have that style of thinking and interacting with the horse? Did you have life experiences before them? Or was it really just learning from the horses and what the owners were giving you feedback from? Well, it's all of the above. But what started me was, as I mentioned, I was showing and so I'm trying to learn from the trainers that are at the show, from the other people and stuff. And this trainer tells me, he said, well, uh, if your horse doesn't stop good enough, you know, then just punish him and back him up. Well, I'm at home and I'm riding, riding this horse and he didn't stop good enough. And so I did what that trainer said. I scold, I, I backed him up. And I already had this horse just lighter than a, he was extremely light. He was extremely fast. And so he started backing up really fast and then just flipped over. He didn't mean to do it. He just flipped over. Well, luckily he threw me about 15 feet, you know, behind him. And I got up and I thought, that is the stupidest thing I have ever done. And the dumbest thing I've ever listened to. So I went to the barn that day and I got down all of the gimmicks off of the tack room walls, all of the bits, uh, and I took them to the burn barrel and burned them. And I decided I kept out one D-ring snaffle bit and I decided if I could not learn how to train a horse with that bit, then I would quit. And so that's really what started me on, on finding easier and better ways, you know, and softer ways to train a horse. Wow, that's super inspiring <laughs> <laughs> and unique because I feel like a lot of people end up um, in that sort of situation where maybe not as extreme as that, but where the horse is really obviously telling them that it's not working. And instead of listening to their gut, they say, well, the trainer must be right and keep on doing what's harmful to them and their horses so that really shows how when you get creative and look within <laughs> and trust yourself and what the horse is telling you it opens you up to whole new pathways well kaylee you're 100 percent right and what i 
try to teach people and taught them for a lot of years is they're better trainers than they think they are. Uh, and so when they're in a situation where their gut tells them that either what somebody else is doing with their horse or what somebody tells them to do with their horse, if they kind of get a gut feeling that this is not a good idea, then they should definitely not do it, nor should they let somebody else do it to their horse. If no matter who it is, I know people that have lost their horses because they let a, let a vet talk them into giving them one more shot to calm them down and the horse actually died from it or the, several of them have died from it. So I believe that God gives us, you know, an, uh, something inside us that is connected us to the horse that tells us when something is not right uh, or we shouldn't listen to anybody or somebody. And so when, you know, I tell professional trainers and uh, non-professional trainers, I tell them if, you know, just follow simple rules. If you do this, you know, and it doesn't turn out as planned, can you get hurt? And if the answer is yes or maybe, don't do it. it you know, if if you do this and it doesn't turn out as somebody tells you it's going to turn out and the horse can get hurt, well, don't do it. You know, you're better off not touching the horse. At least you still have a sound horse. Uh, and so if, you, if we learn to follow pretty basic rules and and know that we are the owners of the horse. No one else owns the horse, not the vet, not the clinician, not the trainer. You're 100% responsible for what happens to that horse. So if your gut tells you, if it gets kind of queasy, if you're thinking, I don't know, well then, you know, uh, almost 99% of the time, I will bet that that person is right. You know, if they just listen to their gut. Yeah, definitely. Listening to the gut is what I find most people are just so disconnected from their bodies and then they're disconnected from their horses as well. And they well, have to keep, the horses have to keep talking in louder and louder ways to get through to them. Well, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully that uh, we learn to listen before that. We don't, you know, uh, I've eliminated correction in my in my training i never have to correct a horse mm -hmm. and whenever the horse is doing something i don't want him to do then i ask myself this question john what would you like him to do and then i just replace his whatever he is doing with the, the what i want him to do it's like you can walk and chew gum right yeah and you walk and chew gum and rub your stomach Yep. And you walk and chew gum, rub your stomach, and pat your head. That can get complicated. Right. And so I would, if chewing gum was the thing I didn't want you to do, rather than yelling at you and hitting you and telling you don't chew gum, I just add one more thing, you know, and then one more thing, and then one more thing, and then one more thing, until finally you can't be doing all the things I'm asking you to do and the behavior I, that I don't want you to do. So, so it's a, 
uh, it's a great way to train a horse because you're never in a correction mode. You're never late. You're leading the horse rather than following the horse. Uh, whenever you see somebody correct the horse, they're correcting them for what has already happened. So they're not leading in the relationship. They're following in the relationship. When you correct them, then what happens? Why would that horse want to be with you? You know, why would he, why would he, if he knows you're going to spur him, you know, when you come out of the stall sometime in that 15 minutes or that hour or whatever, then why would he want to come out? Why would he want your company if you're going to scold him all the time or scold him part of the time? So everybody says they would like a close relationship with their horses, but it then it's, if you slap your kids or yell at your kids every time you're around them, pretty soon they don't want to be around you. And so we have to find ways to make it the, the training enjoyable for the horse. Make the horse, you know, let that horse know that there's nothing that he can do that really calls for a change or a flare-up of anger and emotions from me. You know, it's just... I'm there. I really don't want the horse to know me. Uh, I want the horse to know me as a flat line person, but I don't go up. I don't go way down. I just, my emotions stay the same. Now, it doesn't mean I can't hug him, can't kiss him, can't love on him, all of those things. I do that for a, for a fact, you know, and I want that horse to enjoy my company. So lots of times I'll just sit with him and, and, you know, just sit with him, whatever, you know, having put his head in my lap. Uh, I'll do all of those fun things that we enjoy doing with the horse. It's not stepping on us. It's not spooking over the top of us. And uh, a horse that looks like he enjoys our company. And so I get to spoil him just as much as anybody does. But I still teach him good manners and I teach him, you know, that, they have to do horse things, which is, you know, lead, carry me around and do it safely. That's a really good distinction to make too, that you can love on your horse, give them all of that attention, be close, have them in your lap, as long as they aren't overly in your space or dangerous. Have you found that people sometimes have a hard time making that distinction? Yeah, because they don't know. They don't know that the horse can be both ways. You know, they don't recognize that the horse is being ill-mannered, but we we could take that that concept away from horses and and put it to kids. You know, when you go to a restaurant and anymore whether it's uh, a low-end restaurant, a medium restaurant or even a high-end restaurant, you know, you you see kids running around, the parents don't make them sit down and sit at the table and sit still and talk in a normal tone. Um, parents don't make them do that anymore. And so, in, and the reason they don't is because they, I guess they're afraid if they correct the kid, that the kid isn't going to like them and not going to be their friend. And so, uh, you know, in, in doing that, the kid actually grows up with less and less boundaries. Uh, that 
you know, polite boundaries to live within, you know, or following rules or who they respect or who they don't respect. You know, if they don't respect their parents and the parents tell them to do something and they don't do it and the parents go, oh, well, you know, Johnny's just that way. Well, you know, they're not going to respect the police. They're not going to respect other people, you know, et cetera. So, so my horses, you know, I just teach them good manners. That's all I, and that's not being mean to them. It's actually the opposite. Teaching them good manners is a is a good thing. That doesn't mean if you teach your kid good manners to eat at the eat at the table, that doesn't mean you can't hug them and love them and have great conversations and a great friendship with them. It just means you've helped them by teaching them, you know, how to behave in society and, and what politeness is, you know. But even parents anymore. I mean, you go to a restaurant. And you can't hear the person across the table, and yet, you know, you're listening to somebody that's three tables away that's just obnoxiously loud, you know. And so we have forgot. We have forgotten in many ways. We have forgotten how to be courteous to other people, how to teach our horse to be courteous to us. Yeah, I've found that when people don't teach their horse manners, it really creates a lot of anxiety because then the horse doesn't know where they're supposed to be and they become insecure and then the person gets more scared of them and it kind of goes downhill fast. So I like that distinction of manners because it helps the horse, helps people um, as compared to obedience. I agree 100%, Kaylee, that... I think it it uh, it set, sets boundaries of security for the horse, it, it, and so the horse feels more secure in those boundaries, you know, and more at peace even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I agree with you a hundred percent. It actually it's a great thing to do for the horse because it's inside this area that. He can feel confident that he builds confidence and that he feels secure. But without any boundaries, then he is left up to his own decisions on what is safe or what is not safe to do. And so uh, it gives him, you know, it's like like being in a stall. Eventually, you know, he, he feels more secure there than he does out on the highway. Yeah, (laughs) much safer there. Um, Going back to how you were talking about um, trying to keep a really neutral emotion and never getting angry, how do you help people learn how to do that? Because most of the time people have a certain level of anxiety or emotions, and when you come to the barn, even if you try to put it all at the door, that's still going to seep in. So how do you encourage people to work on that outside of just around the horse or maybe even with the horse? Well, education is the key on that. You know, you can't, you can't change anybody. Uh, you, they can change themselves. All you can do is be an example, uh, try to give the proper analogies, try to the proper reasons, um, the benefit 
of changing their actions. So it's a, and then it's up, up to them to change. I don't do exercises to uh, get them excited and get them to calm down or angry and then say, oh, oops, you messed up. I don't do anything like that. I, I just try to explain to them the, the benefits of how we change, you know, changes the horse. Um, people want their horse to change, but they just don't understand the change doesn't come from the horse. The change comes from our behavior. Uh, we change, and the question is, is this, what changes do I need to make in me to see a reflection of that change in my horse or people around me. So it's learning that all change, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our spouse, our parents, other people around us in the workplace, we wanna point the finger and say that person should change, that kid should change, when really we need to point the finger at ourselves and say, what change do I need to make in me to see a reflection? And you only get a, it's like looking into a foggy mirror. You don't get a, an, a, a, as much of a change as you made, but you get a reflection of that change. So it's recognizing that all of us are important. All of us, other people are watching and <clears throat> and they see how we behave and then they react to that behavior uh, so we can we can we can have a reaction that is positive from other people or we can have a reaction that is negative and all of those principles apply to horses as well that's wonderful um with those principles, did a lot of these develop as you were working with horses? But you're saying um, it's so, we learn so much about our lives from our horses. I know they teach me so much how to be a better person. Um, were you familiar with these concepts or was this kind of how you lived your life before coming into horses or did they really help shape that? No, no, I think they... As we get older, we learn more, or we should, and then the horses are truly amazing teachers. Uh, they are, you know, a horse is not a dog. Um, a, a dog has an owner, uh, a master, per se. And there's an old cowboy saying that when you're feeling pretty important and you think you're pretty cool, call somebody else's dog. And that dog, that dog will show you exactly how unimportant you really are. Yeah. And so a dog has an owner. It has a master. But a horse does not. I uh, have taught my horses to run straight to me and, and have had them 10, 15, 20 years. And yet I could put somebody 10 feet off to the side, call them, and they'll go right to that person. And the reason is because I'm not their owner. I'm not their master. They, they, we represent all mankind to a horse. And so when we go in and work with a horse and, and we work differently than the owner has worked or other people has worked with the horse, 
The horse looks at us and he says, I see you have changed. And because you have changed, I will not hold the past against you. And then that horse will adapt in that hour, that hour and a half, that 30 minutes, it will completely adapt and change its behavior. Even if it's behavior, he's been doing the same behavior for 20 years, he can change or he will change. And the reason he changed when God made the horse, number one, the horse is God's second most favorite, and I really think first, most favorite animal on earth. And I can show you that and prove that to you many times over in the Bible. But when he made the horse, he says in a verse that I gave them their strength, I gave them their grace, and I filled them with boundless courage. So, uh, and, and so all of those things are true. Uh, and I've been able to, to observe those things as being true. Uh, you know, they're certainly fast when they move <laughs> and when yeah. they want to move. They can be very fast. And so, so he gave them their speed. He says they gave them their grace. Well, um, have you ever seen a blind person run full speed? No. No. And so, but my horse went blind at 19 years of age, and he would still run full speed. Well, that takes two things. It takes courage, you know, and then it also takes athletic ability. I could take and spin him in like a reigning horse spin 10 times one, one direction, turn around spinning 10 times the other direction, and then loping off in a straight line. And we couldn't do that. You know, we couldn't have somebody spin us, you know, and then with our eyes closed and then say, now start running in a straight line. We'd go about two steps, three steps and fall down. So, uh, their, their, their ability as far as being graceful and athletic is truly amazing. Courage, uh, when you ask a horse to go across something that he's afraid of, maybe it's a shadow, maybe it's a small ditch, maybe it's a small creek, uh, anything that the horse is afraid of, what the horse is doing, he's making a life and death decision. And he's making that decision not because he wants to make it, he's making it because somebody else asked him to make it. So, you know, he doesn't understand getting a scratch. He doesn't understand getting hurt and going to the veterinarian and, and the veterinarian fixing him up. All he knows is if he steps on that, across that ditch, if he steps in that water, if he steps on that shadow, that, you know, he's either going to die or he's not, you know, and so he's making a life and death decision. And it's pretty amazing to be able to sit on a horse and watch him make that decision, uh, that life and death decision, just because we're asking him to do it. And we might ask him to do that four or five times, you know, on a trail ride, you know, or at a horse show or uh, someplace that we're riding him and not think much of it, but we couldn't do that. We, we don't have enough courage that, you know, if somebody asks us to step into this bucket load of snakes, you know, or this arena full of snakes that, 
you know, and we're afraid of snakes. We don't have the courage to do that and to do it four or five times in a row when we know that if one snake bites us, we're going to die. There's no anti-venom. There's none of that stuff. You're going to die. And so, but that horse makes that decision. So when God said that he filled them with boundless courage, he wasn't kidding. His, the, you know, grace is being able to forgive. Uh, when, even when we're in the right and somebody else in the wrong, you know, extending grace to that person is uh, a huge thing, you know, and it's an important thing. It's important for us to be able to do it. God has tried to teach us to be able to do it because, you know, we're going to have lots of hurts in our life. And if we carry those hurts, then it eventually bogs our life down and it's not good. So learning to forgive, you know, is, is extremely important. And that's part of the grace that the horse gives us, which is really cool because the, God made the horse so adaptable, so changeable, you know, and his grace, God's grace is based on two things. Number one is that we admit that we've made a mistake. And number two, that we accept what he's done in sending his son, Jesus Christ, here to pay for that mistake. And we admit that we're wrong and we'll try to change. So the horse, you know, will, will no matter how many years goes by, no matter what has gone on, you know, when the horse looks at us and if I start to treat him differently, he notices that. And he says, I see you have changed. And because you have changed, I will not hold the past against you. So he wants to live in peace. That's all a horse wants. And he's willing to trade his freedom. He's willing to, to risk his life by going over these ditches and these shadows and these mailboxes and these horse-eating rocks. He's willing to trade everything in his life so that he can have those moments of peace out in that pasture. If you look at him uh, out in the pasture, you don't see him jigging. You don't see him being crazy and doing all that stuff. You know, uh, they only do those things when we get involved in their life. And so the horse really, all he wants in his life is peace. And he's smarter than we are. He says, I'll trade everything I have in my life just so that I could have that peace. And we would like the same thing. We would like to live in peace without the worry of what's going to happen tomorrow, to live in peace without the worry, or are we going to be able to pay our bills? Are we going to get cancer? You know, we'd like to live in peace with our parents, with our kids, with our mates. Uh, we would just like to live in peace. When you understand that that's what the horse wants, and you really put that into practice, you know, then all of a sudden it changes how your hands are. It changes how you react to the horse. When a horse is throwing his head and just throwing a fit, ask yourself, step back for a minute, just look at the horse and ask yourself, is this horse at peace? And the answer is going to come back no, you know. And so our job 
is to show him where he can find that peace. And you don't find peace by punishing him. You know, you just, you know, understand that he doesn't want to throw his head no more than you want him to throw his head. He doesn't want to be scared any more than you want him to be afraid. There are so many different things, you know, that we want from the horse that the horse also wants, you know. And so it's learning how to capitalize on those things. I never have to tell a horse, stop throwing your head or stop spooking. He says, are you kidding me? Does it look like I want to throw my head? Does it look like I want to spook? What is wrong with you, John? So, so I don't have to tell him not to do those things. I just have to show him he doesn't have to do those things. And, it, and that changes how your hands respond to him, which in turn, you know, uh, changes his responses to you. Beautiful. I think a lot of people forget that at the end of the day, we all want the same thing, which is to be at peace. Um, and I really appreciate the not ever trying to punish them. Do you ever use like positive reinforcement, like clicker training, or is it mostly by giving them other things to think about and kind of just ignoring the quote bad? Well, I never ignore the bad. I just replace the bad with something that I want the horse to do. I don't look at anything the horse does as bad, uh, except maybe biting, you know. But uh, I don't look at it as bad. I look at it as an opportunity to have him do better what I want him to do. So if he's doing something that I don't want him to do, that's a good thing not a bad thing. It's a good thing because now I've got an excuse to practice the very things I want him to do better. Every horse can stop better, back up better, turn right better, turn left better, pick up his left lead, pick up his right lead. You know, he can do diagonals better. I've never seen a horse that can't improve. So when a horse is doing something I don't want him to do, my natural, normal reaction is to say, no, don't do that, quit, don't do that. But I try to hold on to that emotion and not do that and say, John, what is it you would like this horse to do better? Then I'm already on a positive note. My hands are reacting to the, the maneuvers that I want, not reacting to maneuvers that I don't want. So uh, I, think it's, um, I think it's very important that we, we learn, you know, and, and it takes time to learn these things. You have, to, you have to make them part of you and part of your training uh, not, and learning not to, to be just normal. Normal is not good. You know, everything that's normal for us to do, more than likely we should not be doing with a horse. Most definitely, which leads a lot of people astray. <laughs> well, it does, and so it's a it's a it's an amazing hobby. Uh, horses are just truly an amazing hobby because you can't ever learn it all. You you can't ever 
gain all of the performance that a horse can give us. We can't ever max the horse out. And so there's, it's a lifetime hobby that can keep us interested the length of our lifetime because there's so many uh, facets to it. There's so many new things that we can do. And there's so many different ways that we can improve. So an improvement is always hard because it's change. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective for people to remember, even like if their horse gets older or gets hurt, there's so many aspects that you can improve on with, it could be the relationship, or I saw you doing um, Liberty work in that video with Caroline, and I thought that was really awesome too. Oh, well, good. Well, what else would you like to talk about? Um, I was thinking, well, one question I was going to ask was what can people do after listening to improve their riding and horsemanship and quality of life for their horse? But you've totally covered that. It sounds like really um, people just asking themselves questions of how can I do this better? Is my horse calmer? Am I calmer? Um, all of that work. Um, how about, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for success later? I'm sorry, say that again. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for success later? Well, I think it motivates you. Uh, so motiv failure motivates you to look for better ways and and to find better ways, I don't know anybody who hasn't failed in training because, I mean, we go out every day and we don't, we don't uh, get it 100% right. And it, it, it can be the most frustrating, riding a horse can be the most frustrating thing we can possibly do because uh, we climb on a horse and we go out and we work it and Maybe we get some improvement, but we always know there's more. Or maybe we do something and and we go backwards. We go, you know, and so now we have to fix that. And so it's just a, uh, I think we build, I don't like, you know, people will say, well, I did that, they did that wrong. And, you know, I'll show them something and, They'll say, well, I've been doing that wrong. And I, I don't let them say that. I stop them. And the reason is because right and wrong, if we determine training methods as right or wrong, then it's pretty discouraging if we've been doing it wrong. If I, if I come to your house and I've been loading a horse in the trailer the same way for 20 years and you do it and you're – I'm, you just happen to be loading a horse in the trailer that day. You're not teaching me anything, but I watch you, and and your method is so much better than mine. Then I, I walk away saying, "Well, I've done that wrong for 20 years." Well, I, I if that that happens two or three times, you know, when I come to see, you, I'm not coming back. You know, I'm not coming over. We're not going to be friends because every time I see you, I've been doing this wrong. Now I've been doing that wrong. Now I've been doing that wrong. So, and that's pretty discouraging when you think about it. So I mm -hmm. try to teach people to think in terms of different. 
That's all horse training is. It's just different, different methods, different, different things. You've been doing it different. Now you're going to do it different, you know? So it's, uh, we don't want to think in terms of failures or right and wrong when it comes to a horse. We just want to think of, we want to think of different, you know, different methods. I'm using this method today that allows me to change and be different tomorrow, you know? So that allows change in my life. If I'm stuck on I'm right, you know, and I know the right method, then what happens when somebody else shows up or I learn a new method and it's better and somebody shows up and I said, well, I thought you told me the other way was the right way. Well, now I'm stuck. So I'm stuck doing it the same way, you know, for years. So I think in terms of different, I, I try to understand that I'm not perfect, that I make mistakes, you know, and I try to change from those, uh, those behaviors, you know, and just, so just different. Yeah, different. I like that. It gets away from the self-judgment. So that's really helpful. Right. You don't, you don't want to, you know, people come to me and they'll ask me about other trainers and how do my training methods, you know, differ from another training method or they saw this other trainer do this and they thought it was horrible. Um, and so they asked me, what do I think about that? And I tell them, I don't know. You know, I haven't ridden with that trainer for a year. I don't know that trainer. I don't know his methods. I don't know, you know, I can't judge his, his methods or her methods. So the worst thing we get into as professionals is judging somebody else's uh, behavior. I, I tell people, I'll teach you what I know. I can't teach you what they know. You know, it's up to you to decide what methods do you like. And I'm not going to go learn from that person because I don't have time to do it. But, you know, so I don't judge other trainers and how they do things, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, if a client's asking me about them, I just tell them, well, you're going to have to make your own decision. Yeah. It empowers that person because everyone learns differently. Every horse learns differently. Um, and so many people do judge, especially in the horse industry. So that's really refreshing to just focus on what works for you. Um, yeah. We don't need to fight among each no. other. plenty of horses to help and plenty of people that want to help. Yep. You can learn from everyone, even if it's what you don't want to do. Oh, it's a big, that's so true. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's more, let's say you go watch somebody and you don't, you don't like a hundred things that they, they did, but you like one that they did. Well, you learned a hundred things you don't want to do. Yeah. And that can really lead you to what to do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, kind of on the same idea, although based on your last answer, maybe we shouldn't call it bad, but what are bad recommendations you hear in your profession? So, maybe instead of bad, unhelpful or unhealthy. That has helped me? Uh, bad recommendations you hear in your profession. 
like bad advice that people tend to get? Oh, I, um, I don't know if I can comment on that. You know, there's, um, people just need to think on their own and think what is right. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't do it to a three-year-old kid, you shouldn't do it to a horse. That's what I think. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, that's super important. So good. I think judge everything that you're told, um, you know, by that rule. If you wouldn't do it to a little kid, then don't do it to a horse. Perfect. Yep, that can oh. set you up for success. Right, exactly. Cool. So there's, a, um, there's so many good books, so many different opportunities to learn from you know in in our in our uh, in our hobby you know and that's what horses are they're a hobby there's so many different so many books that have been written so many dvds that have been done uh, so many clinicians out there you know that are wanting to teach people you know i think the the main thing is just go learn don't try to reinvent the wheel uh, try to gather as much information read as many articles as you can and put as much common sense to it as you can possibly put to it definitely great well i think that is a good note to end on to just keep on learning um, and being open to knowledge. If people want to learn more about you and your training, where can they find you? Well, if they can just type in John Lyons or Brandy Lyons or Josh Lyons or Michael Lyons, and they can find find one of us out there somewhere. We've got kids that are excellent trainers in Scottsdale. We've got them in North Carolina. They were in Tennessee, and we've got them up in Pennsylvania, and, and so we have, you know, uh, lots of opportunities for people that want to learn if they want to learn. And we have about 700 trainers throughout the world that we have trained. Wonderful. So, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really inspiring conversation. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Kylie. I certainly do. Mm -hmm.